I'm not going to criticize you if you did or even if you didn't. All right. All right, this morning, I know then some of you know the game. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Remember that game? Well, we're going to play it this morning with Second Samuel. Yep, we are. It's a wonderful story. It's about the ark. You remember the ark? It was uh, made under the instructions of Moses from God to house the what the Hebrews called the Ten Words, we call the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets on which the law was written. It had been covered with gold, but this time we're not actually sure, but that there had been cherubim placed on top of it. And they were in gold as well. And it was carried on poles with the ark up above the poles uh, through the streets. And this great procession was taking place. It was taking place because the ark, after the people left the wilderness and got to the promised land, the ark had, had moved around. And finally, it had come to rest in one particular spot uh, in Shiloh, which is the northern worship place of the Hebrew people, which didn't make the southern Hebrew people very happy, but that's another story. Anyway, the ark had moved around, and then the elders of Israel had come to this wonderful conclusion that when they were fighting the Philistines, wouldn't it be great if we took the ark into battle? You take your most valuable treasure of your nation, put it away up high on poles, and carry it into battle. Not a good idea. The Philistines obviously made right for the ark and stole it and took it away. And the people were just absolutely shocked. They were beyond shocked. They were, they were stunned. They couldn't imagine that anyone would steal their ark. But the Philistines, of course, did. However, we are told that God interfered. And there were many things happened which were very strange and very harmful. And finally, after about seven weeks, the Philistines said, no, no, we don't really want this ark anymore. We're sending it back to you. So they put it on an ox cart, whipped the oxen, and sent them up the road. And say, go take this back where it came from, as we don't want anything to do with it. And so once again, the ark came into the possession of the Hebrew people. And on its return, it finally ended up in the house of Abinadab at Kiriath-Jerim, and there it stayed. Saul, the king, died. David took over. The first thing David wanted to do was get the ark into the southern kingdom, obviously, but get the ark up to his new newly conquered capital of Jerusalem. So what we're going to do, we have a great procession and slaughter all sorts of animals and sing all sorts of songs and do all sorts of wonderful things, bringing the ark up into Jerusalem. And that's exactly what they did. It was a joyous procession. It was wonderful. Uh, the procession was about 15 kilometers, which means how many came from Willow Park? Anybody come from Willow Park today? Well, it's about where 15 kilometers is about from South Center to here. That's how far the procession went. But a lot of people, a lot of little towns would have been passed through. And the people you can imagine out there, they were absolutely excited because, because God was passing by. Remember, the ark was the actual throne or footstool of God. God was with the ark. And so here you have God in the ark. You have David, the new popular uh, rock star. And remember, they'd have been singing David's songs because he, he wrote the Psalms, so they'd probably sing, usually we say it was probably Psalm 24, Lift up your heads, O gates, 
and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? God strong and mighty, God mighty in battle. They'd been singing this all the way along the route, and they finally reached Jerusalem. And it was just wonderful. This was the most magnificent thing you can imagine. David took off his outer royal robes and danced in an ephod of linen, which is like a nightgown. Do people know, young people, do we know what a nightgown is? Yeah, all right. My father used to wear a nightgown, but I didn't know anybody did. Anyway, that's how he was dancing. But everyone was just caught up in the moment. This is, this is amazing. And then... Suddenly, we read this. As the ark of God came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before God and despised him in her heart. There it is. There's the verse that is not like the others. There's the verse that doesn't belong. It's somehow ingratiated its way into the text, but it's completely against the rest of the passage. The rest of the passage is about celebration. You know, here we are, we've got the Ark of God, we're coming into our new capital city, we've got a new king, the future is open to us, this is the beginning of the new world. And then we get into this family spat, and we're not really sure what it was about, and in fact we probably don't want to know what it was about, but she looked out and she saw him, and she despised him, in your heart. This is not pleasant, happy language. This is the depth of hatred that we find it difficult to understand. Nonetheless, this verse is important because like many verses like it in the Bible, and there are several others, it is an echo, a small whisper of the other voices that the Bible doesn't record. Remember, the Bible was written by the winners, and there were some losers out there, and they were there too. There were a number of people in that country, a number of people watching that procession, maybe a considerable, maybe even a statistically significant number of people who weren't happy with what was happening, who weren't celebrating, who were watching it with a sense of failure, a sense of frustration. And certainly, one of those people would have been Michael, the daughter of King Saul. But she'd seen it all. Remember, Saul was the king of Israel. He'd been loved. And then a few military blunders, and people suddenly don't like him anymore. And then he would have outbursts of what we would probably diagnose now as either bipolar or depression. And he became a person that no one really wanted to go near because you couldn't trust him. You know, who, would, who knows what Saul was going to do? He's not, this man is not stable. In fact, we're told that the women of Jerusalem had a song. You know, they, they would sing, Saul has slain his tens, his ten thousands and David his tens of thousands. You know, you know, Saul was okay, but you know, We've got the one we want now. David's the one that will bring us victory and do everything. And many people were there. And I said, "Is Michael, you've got to think what's going through her head. You know, her, her dad had, had bring, brung the north to the center of the kingdom. This is what it was about. And now suddenly we have this new king who says, no, we're all north and south. We're all in this together. And I'm going to move the ark from where it's always been, 
though not really that long, up into Jerusalem, and they were even talking about building a temple for it. It won't be in a tent anymore. It'll have a big, shiny marble building to be in. Saul had wanted that, but had never accomplished it. Her father had been popular, but now David was off the scale. Just like Elton John was once popular, and now Donald Trump has beaten all his records. You know... Saul had allowed the worship of other gods. Now, we forget this. You know, we sort of think that, well, all right, the Israelites came into the Promised Land, and all the people who didn't believe in Yahweh, didn't believe in the Hebrew God, disappeared. No, they didn't. They were still there, and they'd been tolerated. And now suddenly, no, no, David's going all out. This, this, is, this is what the new world is like. There is one God, the God who sits upon the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was the, probably the straw that broke the camel's back as her father had been a king. He'd worn the proper outfits. He had a certain amount of dignity. And David, what's he doing? He's taking off his robes and dancing out in public, going crazy because, because he's in some sort of religious ecstasy. That's not what we want in a ruler. We want, we want a proper king. And David isn't. And so Michael looked out on the parade and despised David in her heart. She wanted, and many others did as well, the old times back. Can't we just turn back the clock and go back to when we, we were a good, a happy people, and not this newfangled stuff that everyone keeps bringing in? Now, most of us, I presume, would see ourselves on the side of David. We'd be there. We'd be cheering on the, the God of Israel. We'd be cheering on the bringing of the ark up into the new city, the new capital. This is wonderful. And yet, at the same time, aren't there times when all of us, for one reason or another, find ourselves on the other side of change? find ourselves with Michael and her friends looking at the world around us like my two buddies did in the Ranchman's Club and saying, what's happening to our world? You know, everything seems to be changing. Does nobody remember the things we've done? Nobody remember the things that we thought were important? You know, there, there's all sorts of new music and new ways of communicating and, and people don't dress up for church anymore and we do things differently. And, you know, why can't we just go back and have the old times back? And that's a very valid question, and really two sides to it. First, how do we deal with change when we find ourselves in a world that's changing faster than we can change? And if we're the ones who are cheering on the change, who want, yeah, let's do things new, let's have new hymns, let's do new things here, how do we remember that not everyone is quite as happy with the new as we are? I think there are two fundamental principles here that we have to hold on to above all else. The first is that God continues to love all of us. The ones who like every new thing that comes along and are the first to adopt it, and those who step back and can't really understand why we want to do things in a different way. God continues to love all of us and in a sense to, to urge us to be together through all the changes of life. It doesn't matter who's president of the United States doesn't matter ultimately what general counsel does this week about the structure of the United Church, which is radically changing, probably. It doesn't matter if the community association decides to build a new building when you don't want to build a new building. No, those things are all secondary. The big thing is that somehow 
we are all together no matter what side of an issue we are on. Because there's something deep, the love of God, that goes far beyond any particular issue. Now, I, I had to laugh coming in this morning because I'm now going to talk about inclusion. And I see we have inclusion here. And inclusion is a good word, by the way. I'm not against the word. But Doug Hall, the Canadian theologian, thinks that it can be misinterpreted. It's like the word tolerance. You know, like, we tolerate everybody. Yeah. <laughs> In inclusion could mean, yeah, we include you. You're like, you know, the drunk uncle we have to invite to Christmas because, yeah, I guess we have to, you know, because we're inclusive. Uh, he would rather use, and I want to get his phrase correct here, hospitality toward difference. I rather like that. Hospitality. We're not just including you because, well, I guess we said we're going to include you, so we should. We're being hospitable. We're being open. That means that through all the changes we all go through, for all the things we are divided over, for all the things we agree on, we're always hospitable. We meet together and we have a pancake breakfast. And there are people around that table who agree with us on some issues and some on others. But we're together, and that is, I think, one thing the church can be in a changing world, and indeed must be in a changing world, and that is a community in which we show hospitality for everyone. And you may say, yeah, but I don't agree with you. Okay, you don't, but we still love one another. We're still holding together. This is the ultimate vision of the family. Not that all families are ideal, except, except of course, mine, but, you know, that we have this idea where, yeah, we're together in this. And connected very closely with that is the second principle, which is that ultimately we see the big picture. That's really what thinking about God gives to us. We, we see the big picture. And really all the little things that separate us. Remember two people once fighting over whether it was a whale or a large mammal that swallowed Jonah. And <sighs> yes, people can get upset about those things. Beyond all of that, beyond all the little differences we have on a particular issue, we are connected with the bigger issue of everyone in this place at any time. Being committed to a world in which everyone has a voice, which everyone can be heard, which everyone can feel they belong to in some way, in which everyone can experience and know on a deep and personal basis and in the construct of their community, the love of God. That's what's really important. So when... We get caught up in the little things. Always remember that. No, there's something beyond this. I remember my home church in Hamilton once had a huge congregational splitting debate on what color to paint the little strip that went around the front of the church. Uh, and I don't know what color it was, and I don't remember what color they changed it to, but I remember people were just, oh, we're going to leave. You know, If you paint that green, we're coming back to this church. Or maybe it was painted yellow. I don't remember. I could probably, you know what color once was. Fran knows and Randy both know the church. But, you know, this, this was, and no, there's bigger things here. What about the love of Christ? What about the kids trapped at the border? What about the slaughter that goes on in the Middle East? What about global warming? What about the larger issues to which we should all be raising a voice in our hands to help and to bring about real change? Change is difficult. It also, unfortunately, or fortunately, is inevitable. Change comes. And as those who find it difficult, we need a voice of others who can listen to us and hear our concerns and act accordingly. And for those who want the change, we need to be patient. And remember, there are 
idea, our ideal, is ultimately to bring everyone in. And it means compromise on the little things, but not compromise on the large things that bind us together. The love of Christ, which is central. The hospitality, which is necessary. And the power of the Spirit working in us to bring justice to the world, which is our mission. The great parade goes on. And sometimes eh, we're not really sure about everyone who marches in it, but we're part of it. And God's with us and with them and with our world. And for this, thanks be to God. Now our final hymn.